You're listening to the second episode of Season 2 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. As in Season 1, this podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing and traditional isolationist church climate not working out, but it is not intended as an attack on faith. In fact, it is mainly about trying to retain some connection to God, despite everything and everyone. It's also about depression and the cathartic powers of words and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my young adult life that occasioned the writing of a song from my unreleased follow-up concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue, for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 2, Intentions, Leathery Wings. Growing up, we were earnestly taught dualism, straight up. Two natures in the believer, Gordon Hayo called it, and we all believed it. It didn't matter that we said the old nature and the new nature and the Bible didn't use those terms or images. A person with two natures? I once asked a brethren elder who was accusing me of having bad doctrine to make his old nature, new nature points using only the terminology found in his Bible. Needless to say, he was shocked to find that he absolutely couldn't. It didn't matter that everything the Bible said and the imagery and symbols it used got trimmed and molded to fit into our handy two Eskimo dog idea. We believed that we were saved by grace through Christ's death, the gift of God the Father, but that we were blessed, made happy, to be healthy and prosper through special works of our own willpower, seen in repressing and sacrificing most potentially joyful experiences to live the church lifestyle and in devoting several hours each week to its mind-numbing routines. We were quite proud of how powerful a sinner each of us kept chained up in the dungeon of his heart, bound by the shining shackles of purest Bible teaching and prayer. Our sinner selves were powerful, elemental, rock-star demons of the very first order, potentially, or would be, if we ever let our iron control slip just once. They certainly weren't mean-spirited, sniveling, snotty little perverts who loved gossip and character assassination. It seemed like sin, and joy, and pleasure, and nature, and the world, and all the other grim forces of evil were incredibly tricky, ingenious, powerful, and compelling. But us using our heroic wills to get out to church several times a week no matter how boring it was there, and to read our Bibles and pray daily and generally die to ourselves mortifying our parts each day, was apparently a feeble, human effort almost too weak to do anything but hold a Methodist standoff together until the rapture finally saved us from this tragic daily battle. It was Aragorn, charging the gates of Mordor all by himself, only it was us following our church culture, standing up against all the dark attractions of the wicked, wicked world. I'll tell you one thing for free, and Dr. Freud would agree. The more you try and push down what's natural to you, especially if you hate on it and reject it and lie about it and worship it as the sexy, sexy god of all things evil and push it down and spit on it and love it, the more it feels like it might just tear you in two. In fact, the only way to keep control is to kind of suffocate and stunt your growth daily, which was taught to us as not only normal, but wise, virtuous, and healthy. Not pursuing one's own identity and character, but living at a church one. Loving God by hating self. I have no worse enemy than myself, the various hey-hos told us at sundry times and in diverse manners. And that's why I often say that when you're saved, your body is like a house with two tenants. You have within you that fallen nature that you receive by your natural birth, 
and you also have the new life that God gives when you are born again. And so within you are those two natures, those two different lives, if I can speak in that way. And that's why a Christian has a conflict because he has those two natures within him. I was asked by a frequent listener and friend to sum up Gordon Hayhoe's two natures in the believer doctrine here. I'm happy to do so. I just listened to a 60-minute cassette from a young people's meeting by Gordon in 1979 to refresh my memory. Pretty sure I was there when it was originally recorded, and I'm sure that I heard something different than what I just heard this afternoon. Let's see. Point A. Before we were Christians, we used to be fallen, sinful human beings who had the old fallen Adam nature which could not even want to please God. Point B. We want to please God, of course, but we can't. What we do, we want not to do, and what we want to do, we do not. There is no try. Point C. God became man as Jesus and died, and we, that is our old life, our old nature, our fallen sinful life, our flesh, our old man, which are all exactly the same thing, all that ended. Jesus was crucified, died sinless, and was buried, and God saw to it that we were symbolically, positionally, spiritually crucified with him and buried with him, if we choose to be now, and now we have died and have been buried with him, as to the natural, old nature, old life, sinful man, son of Adam, flesh, old man nature. Dead and buried, God says. Point D. So, we'd have this problem with the Old Testament law proving that we need to die because of our nature being one that pleases self and cannot please God or keep his rules, but God views us as dead now because he crucified us with his son's self and buried us with him, so that's okay. Point E. Now we don't need to worry about death and sin and hell and the devil tempting us to sin and God's wrath or anything like that. Now we aren't afraid to die because we know everything will be fine. We just need to reckon, account, consider, and think of our old life, our old nature, our old man as dead, buried, and over because that's how God sees it and that's the end of it. Now we have peace. Peace from God, the peace of God. Point F. The new Christian has a new kind of conflict he didn't have before. He can have no peace from it. It is a daily struggle. He now has two natures, two lives, two men living in him, unlike non-Christians who are just living the one life that can only sin and still needs to die. We have both the life or nature that needs to die and has, God says, and the life or nature that cannot sin and cannot die and so never will, God says. We need to consider reckon, account, view, and think of the old man or old nature or old life as dead, like God does, while always remembering that that old nature, that old life, is very, very much alive and active in us every moment of every day. Point G. So Jesus died so we could have a new life, a new nature identical to his own, a new nature that is like his, completely incapable of sinning. We are free from law, because just like Gordon says, a child who loves ice cream being told he must now go eat ice cream, we want to do what God wants. Reading the Bible, praying, going to meeting, and being with our brethren, and preaching to unbelievers. 
and we have a nature that loves not doing what regular folk with their fallen dead lives do, so we are free to not do that stuff, like go see Star Wars at the movies, because we don't want to, because pleasing ourselves is sin, and we want to please God, and so we do, and so we're free to do it, and when God asks us to do it, that makes it not a law, because we want to do it, so we're free from the law and dead to it also, and in fact, it's not even a law anymore. We are free to obey God when he requires us to please him instead of ourselves, which pleases us because our new nature lives only to please him and not ourselves, and so it pleases us to do it. Point H. We know that when we think a wrong thought, like noticing the shape of someone we're not married to, or want to do a wrong thing, like entertain ourselves instead of pleasing God, this is just our old nature, active within us daily. We should relax and not blame ourselves because that's not us anymore. That old nature cannot do otherwise, so we cannot expect it to. Only God can save us from it, and he already has. Now it is dead, and we have died to it as well, so it is no longer of concern to God. So, out of gratitude for this grace, this gift from God, we need to always reckon the old nature dead by never forgetting it is alive in us. Our standing before God is that we have nothing to do with sin, but often our state before God is that we are sinning. God is faithful to judge, man is responsible not to sin, or otherwise become deserving of God's administrative fatherly judgment. Point I. When we want to go to meeting, and read our Bibles, and pray, and be with our brethren, and preach to confused unbelievers, this isn't us either, and we deserve no credit. It is our new nature, our new life doing what comes natural to it. If we feed it what it wants, reading the Bible, praying, etc., like that child who wants ice cream, then like that child fed the ice cream, it will grow healthy and strong. Strong enough, in fact, to keep that active, dead, alive, old nature from running the show and having its way, trying to please us who want to please God now instead of ourselves, which pleases him. Creating a blessed stalemate between the two. We deserve no credit. We just have to choose to let go and let Christ live through us and not choose to let our old nature choose to please itself, which is us, which is sin. Basically, go to meeting, do and think and feel what we say God wants and you'll be fine, but don't sin. I hope that clears everything up. Now, I have a lot of respect for anyone who is trying to figure it all out. Who are we? What are we? Why are we here? Is there anything else? Is hope a thing? How does it work? And all of that. All human attempts at wisdom, I'm using that word human in an inclusive rather than a judgmental way, quite out of line with my brethren heritage, all human attempts at wisdom that I know of tend to look at birth and rebirth and death and resurrection in various ways. Regular folks walk around talking about a new me or Disney's dead to me or that's the rebirth of modern cinema rising like a phoenix from the ashes. This is not only universal, it's useful, paramount. And let me distinguish between two concepts. Sometimes, when someone is explaining something badly, we understand what's being discussed enough to be able to recognize errors or inconsistencies or general sloppy thinking when it's going on. We call the thinking contradictory. A contradiction is when we clearly understand and clearly see two pieces of thinking not fitting properly. We can follow the thinking being presented to us at least well enough to get that it doesn't follow in places. A key part of explaining something philosophical or religious properly is to draw clear lines of distinction 
between what you think you know and are talking about and what maybe you realize you don't know, or maybe human beings can't know. When we go too far in what we are pretending to know, when we try to simplify the infinite for kids, we make a sloppy mess. Now, the opposite of a contradiction is a paradox, something that you realize is starting to move outside of what normal folks can be trusted to understand and express. It's not that normal human thinking has been done sloppily, it's that normal human thinking is not going to cut it. You understand just enough to know you're not getting everything about how any of this fits together. You have to throw up your hands here and there. You know not to pretend you know more than you do or that it's easier than it is. For example, you may know that two things are both demonstrably true, and so when you are tempted to dismiss them as contradictory, eliminating one or the other, you know that you must be getting something wrong, because you can see them there, both being true, but you don't get how that works exactly. You're missing something, and you can tell. Once you're done trying to say thing A must be false, or maybe thing B is false, and you know that you're confused, you'll have to throw in the towel and be honest about it. Just own up. You call that a paradox. It's like an error message your brain just gave you. Intellectual humility tells you that you're missing stuff, and so have to admit that. I think, even as a child, I could see that Gordon was flat-out contradicting himself. Anyone paying much attention could see that he did not have the grasp of theology that we were supposed to pretend that he did. For one thing, he didn't present it as sufficiently beyond us, or even paradoxical. He presented us with a doctrine that was complicated and broken, and said it was simple and made sense. Predictably, I moved on from Gordon once I thought I saw through his supposed understanding of what the Bible supposedly presented. So you think you know better than Gordon? What are the true answers to these questions then? People snobbily demanded to know. I don't have the true answers, and I don't think Gordon does either. I just want to know more, I said. And that wasn't good enough. But I went looking for more understanding of what I felt books like the Bible were really saying if we didn't indulge ourselves in oversimplifying them and making Sparks Notes versions of them to please ourselves while doing damage to the original work to make all that fit. C.S. Lewis wasn't terribly humble, but I think he was marginally more humble in his apologetics than the Hayhoe brothers. And he was fine if he didn't see things his way, and he liked arguing with smart people. Meanwhile, having had the audacity to move on from the merely Gordon Hayhoe, every time I dealt with brethren people, what Gordon wrote in Two Natures and the Believer was presented as gospel and everything else as dangerous heresy. And heaven only knows what Gordon would have thought of how we were then required by less intelligent people than Gordon Hayhoe by far to put his flawed thinking into even more flawed practice in ways that more than colored our daily thinking, feeling, and living. The message was repeated endlessly. God would always love us. His son had died for us. But if we sinned and had fun, which were the same thing, God would be forced to very reluctantly give us a divine almighty bitch slap right in our lives themselves. We might die. Every year, it seemed to us, young people died because they'd been having too much fun. God was speaking, they always said, when someone young died. When were we young people going to start listening to the precious one who loved us and follow his way and his will rather than our own sinful one? Would we all have to die of car accidents, drowning, suicide, and all the other illnesses young people are subject to? We had to choose the right, choose the light, and not party until heaven. I saw a flaw with the whole saved by grace, blessed by works thing back then. 
and it bothered me. If we had an old nature that only wanted to shoot heroin and party and murder the homeless, and a new nature that vaguely wanted to sing hymns and go to church, and we had to choose between the two on an hourly basis, who exactly was it that was doing this choosing for us? What third party was actually supposed to be in the driver's seat as we lived our lives? Was it something that, I don't know, rhymed with lurch? French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, having decided that he himself existed, probably, he thought, said that as no God exists, we are free to choose whatever we want. But, he said, we tend to play a little trick. We try to let the flip of a coin, if it's sunny out tomorrow, what Carol says this evening, or any number of other things we don't have control over, kind of take control over that choice, which choice had been ours to begin with, but which we've pawned off on Carol, or the sun, or the coin. I know that I do this. I've watched people get someone else to decide which sweater they're going to wear. Now, I did and do believe that Sartre, who no longer exists to argue with me, was wrong about God not existing. I think God exists and existed back then, but a real bait and switch was going on at meeting. Really, we have an overwhelming array of choices facing us each day, and so we use any number of tricks to not have the responsibility of really deciding them. Plymouth Brethren people were no different, and we made it worse by teaching children that choice was the most important thing ever. We built it up to the sky. It started with us ending up in heaven or hell, depending on whether we made a clear choice for Jesus. I felt I needed to make that choice when I was three years old. Haven't changed my mind or anything, but still, three? We hung our eternal salvation on whether we'd made the correct choice. We then went on to teach children that their choices determined whether God would be able to bless them, that's support them and make their lives work out well, or whether he would be forced to speak to them, maybe even with death. And we believed in a God who mainly communicated through death. Don and Donna's A Hive of Busy Bees book told us children the story of a boy who never obeyed or treated his mother well, and one day, when he tried to wake her up from a nap she seemed to be taking on the couch, he found that she was dead. God was speaking to him. And he certainly felt sorry for how he had chosen to act toward and treat his mother then. Lesson learned. So, when choosing what to do Friday evening, we teens knew that our choice was of universal, eternal import. The idea of recreation, which literally means to recreate yourself, letting yourself remember and return to who you were when you weren't exhausted and obligated to others and needing to work all the time. Building yourself back into yourself, allowing you to be and act and feel like yourself again. If you worked too much, served others too much, you lost touch with who you were, didn't feel like yourself, didn't think like yourself either, thought like other people expected you to, and generally lived increasingly in fear of not meeting their every expectation. But for us Plymouth Brethren, self was bad, was our enemy, and our life's purpose was not to live as ourselves, but as who the meeting, um, God, needed and wanted us to be in order to support and reward and bless us. And recreation was at best permissible. It might be fine in its proper place in and of itself, so long as we didn't love what we were doing too much. That would make it an idol. God would have to speak. So, our choices saved or damned us. Being ourselves was the worst thing we could do. 
God spoke with death, and love was idolatry. You don't have to be an atheist to apply what Sartre was saying. We brethren people were born free to make a stressful, overwhelming number of choices. And those choices, we were taught, even if it was just what to wear or what to do Friday night for recreation, were incredibly vital. Nothing could be more important. We might end up spoken to with death by the God who loved us so very much and died for us. And the only real choice of the Bible-obedient Christian was to gladly surrender all to God and let him make every one of our choices for us. More on that later in the album. But for now, A. That only works if God is willing to make all your life choices for you and communicate them to you and hasn't made your making those choices your role and called that living your life, which life he expects to be something to see and not a wasted nothingness you can blame on others or on him. And B, it also only works if that's really God making all your choices for you, rather than it really being your church, using the Bible and God as puppets that let men and women with hearts two sizes too small really lay out a very narrow life for you indeed by limiting your choices. He is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his glory with exceeding joy. But he also says, keep yourselves, keep yourselves. There is a path. There is a path. We live in an evil day. God has his will for you. God is faithful and man is responsible. The fact of the matter is, they were your choices from the beginning, you had them, and would continue to have them unless you could be convinced by someone else to part with them. They told us there was an old story of an old Eskimo man with two sled dogs that fought all day long. Which one tended to win, the wise old Eskimo sage was asked. Whichever one I feed the most, he is said to have replied, from his ice flow as polar bears no doubt stalked around behind him, under the northern lights, singing, Watch out where the huskies go, don't you eat that yellow snow. Watch out where the huskies go, don't you eat that yellow snow. So it was for us, they said. If we fed our hearts on TV and music and dancing and fun, our old natures would grow far too powerful to deny, and we'd soon end up penniless drunks in the gutter awaiting charges for public indecency. If we fed our hearts on the Bible and hymns and time spent in prayer and at church, the new nature just might get nearly strong enough to keep that sexy, powerful old nature down a bit until glory. He was pretty cool, though. Dualism, a stalemate, with church as tiebreaker. You were to mix the lava with the glacier until all that remained was some lukewarm water, like what God says he loves in Revelation. It was all too easy a handle, a button to press quickly and often to keep us in line. What was the stuff that needed to be kept down, those things that were of the old nature? Well, anything the church didn't like. Things the old folks felt were too emphatic, too virile, too fun, too colorful, too exuberant, too sensual, too young. And what were the things of the new nature? Church. Meeting. That's what. Anything related to meeting. What a coincidence. It was like going to several 
meetings, weekly, was all that kept us Cineholics Anonymous from falling off the wagon, important to spend our lives with others who are working the program and not spend time with people who followed lifestyles in which sin played any part, old associates, users, enablers, important not to tempt ourselves with TV shows and movies that depicted people sinning either. It wasn't like there was a bunch of depictions of sin in the Bible. We knew all this was real. The world was evil and tempting. Just look at it. And our group, our church, the meeting, the brethren, the assembly, was the most good and properly taught and ecclesiastically correct, administratively impeccable group of human beings that ever was, though we were quick to admit, not perfect. We had something we called the mountaintop experience, a term the children of our more modern brethren folk had picked up from hanging out with evangelicals from more mainstream churches. We spent our lonely lives walking around at school and work, odd and separate, true born-again Christians not allowed to do the things most people did. Too often, we were alone too much, or stuck with relatives we didn't want to be stuck with all the time, and this one weekend, a few times a year, a Bible conference or a youth camp. Suddenly, to be in a room with literally hundreds, maybe a thousand other people, all about our age and all just about like us, gathered from all over the place. Suddenly, we didn't have to be different. We weren't supposed to be. Oh, Rob seemed to be sneaking off to smoke cigarettes between meetings, and there was rumor that Esther had made out with two guys at once behind the canoe shed, but mostly for most of us, we went around with Bibles in hand, singing hymns, dressed in our preppy best, surrounded by people who spoke like us, apparently thought like us, and certainly never said anything different from any of us. It was amazing. I can't explain it. It was a rich, golden, syrupy high that flowed warmly down one's spine for the weekend once it got going about halfway through the time there, and it was clearly wearing off once one left. You can get high on unity, trip out on tribalism. We did. And in that state of religious euphoria, we often vowed brave vows. We were really and truly going to go home and throw away those pop music tapes with what sounded like possibly sexual lyrics. We were going to be more careful about casual swearing, gracious, about checking out girls in stirrup pants. Who it was we chose to hang out with at school. We'd take down that poster of Jordan Knight or Carmen Electra, depending. We were going to live right. I stood uncomfortably before sunset one evening and watched one of my in-from-the-outside friends toss hundreds and hundreds of dollars of late 80s comic books, magazines, horror movies on VHS tape, cassette tapes, and Dungeons and & Dragons stuff into a dumpster and pee on it so he wouldn't be tempted to fish all of it back out again. The look on his face as he urinated was a kind of fierce, shining, holy zealotry that likely felt amazing from the inside, but looked fairly troubling to people outside looking on. Well... One time, riding the mountaintop experience myself, vowing my vows, I wrote a song denouncing TV, pop music, and movies, and worse, as silly, corrupting wastes of time I was no longer going to yearn after. It was all an arty-farty poetic code. Drinking from the fount of folly, no time there will I waste, was clearly about not watching comedy on TV anymore. Nor at the place where trapped in time beauty is debased was obviously referring obliquely to nudie mags. Playboys. Big and chunky, maybe. Like Tim's teenager had shoplifted from Zellers back in those pre-internet times. You know, those greasy, slippery periodicals you found discarded in heaps in fields and alleyways. Bad stuff. 
the things of this world that the old nature positively throve upon. And another time, feeling rather different from that, but not terribly long afterward, I wrote a song about feeling like very dark emotions and thoughts were continually writhing around inside me, like a skull stuffed full of snakes, like a dragon with its tail coiled around my spine, no matter how many hymns I sang or chapters of the King James Bible I memorized. And I kind of liked it. It was like my despair and depression were it, or caused it, or hurt it, or fed it, or defeated it, or something. And instead of making the last word of each line rhyme with the last word of the next line or the one after that, I made the first word in the next line match it. So with that old, old joke like the kid in Twisted Sisters, we're not going to take it video, with rock and roll guitar being so emotionally powerful and freeing that it blew his father's hair back and knocked him out a window. I want to rock. I decided to Frankenstein the two songs together, with the one rudely and violently interrupting the other. That was harder to execute than I thought. But in my head, the earnest young church guy would stand up and sing his earnest church song, vowing to earn blessing and peace by forswearing, partying, and all forms of fun, which things God doth hate, but a dark, powerful, primal something or other would tear him in half, leap out of the agonized husk of him, and lay waste to the whole service and everyone in attendance. Nothing would be left but smoking, greasy entrails, and scorched hymnals. And it would feel great. George in his music store after hours played aggressively as I told him I'd be adding stuff to the thin little guitar later on. bass, guitars, and vocals at home on my computer and ran into the usual problems with my soft voice. A guy at Long and McQuaid Music Store told me to listen to Kill Switch. Oh, more like a dog barking and less like Cookie Monster, I realized. I could layer some of that in. Disrupt my nightmares! See my brain! and also some evil snarling. I was working at a high school with a wannabe 90s grunge star teacher named Jay, that's Tyler's brother, who was much better at music than me, and he consented to add his electric stylings to Bitterness on the previous album and to Leathery Wings on this one. I got him to sing on it too. Feathery wings, 
Guitar soloing was actually me for some reason, though. mixing this song, it struck me that it needed something. I gotta have more cowbell. It needed more cowbell, because it didn't have any cowbell. And I don't own a cowbell. And it was COVID, and the local music store had gone out of business because of COVID. R.I.P. S.R.C. So I took a drumstick and went around the house whacking things to see what sounded the most like a cowbell. It turned out to be a frying pan. Then, last summer I decided to use my best gear to make something for the first bit that sounded like it was literally recorded on someone's cell phone at church by a not-at-all-anointed worship team band group. I giggled to myself with glee as I thought of more and more ways to make it sound terrible. Good morning and, uh, and welcome. We just want to really... Thank you, and, and really just welcome you for, for joining us this morning. Um, and it's so important. And uh, I thought that, uh, that, that we'd start out by, by sharing with you a, a song that I, I wrote last weekend, actually. And uh, it's just a, a song about just getting really serious about, about you know, like God and just the Christian life. So, so I hope you enjoy it. Explaining as you flee in 
Yeah, 